Blog Talk Radio. Everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Trendle Bed Tales. Now, uh, I'm sorry to tell you that we've got a little bit of a problem getting a hold of the phone number um, that I was supposed to call my guest at tonight. It isn't seeming to letting me go through. So I'm going to actually go ahead and let you listen to the theme music again while I try and get this straightened out. So thank you very much. trying to get in touch with Kathleen so I can call in on another number um, early in hopes that she is going to see my message and and give me the, the new number to dial. But um, uh, since she hasn't yet, let's just uh, talk a little bit about Thanksgiving while we're waiting. Um, oh, and I could go ahead and give the housekeeping information. So first off, Let's get going with the housekeeping. And our housekeeping today, we wanted to let you know uh, that if you want to call in or make a comment, you can do that at 714-242-5253. That's 714 714- Two four two five two five three or toll free one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. That's one eight seven seven three nine three eight nine. And normally we have the chat room open too, but we're having all sorts of fun tonight, and it looks like the chat room is also uh, offline. So it's just going to be one thing after another, and response there, response there, okay, all right, well, uh, let me talk just a little bit uh, about uh, the topic myself, and we'll, we'll get started here, and Hopefully, she'll see my message and 
get back to me and we'll get her to call in. But uh, otherwise, we'll just talk a little bit about Thanksgiving here for a bit. Thanksgiving um, is something that people kind of have in their heads that uh, can all be traced back to the pilgrims and what we refer to as the first Thanksgiving in 1621. But that really isn't uh, where most of the traditions came from. Uh, while we like to think that they're from uh, the uh, pilgrim past, actually a lot of the things that uh, we do for developing today actually comes from the Victorians, including the fact that we call this uh, event the thank the first Thanksgiving, which actually came out of something that was rediscovered in the 1820s. And a lot of the traditions um, that developed over time fairly early on were the ideas of having uh, turkey and pumpkin, although they didn't come from that first Thanksgiving. And, okay, that's been five minutes. I am starting to think she isn't going to get the message. So we may have to just Uh, at 8.30, but I think we better, I'm sorry to say, go ahead and end the episode. Thank you for uh, tuning in tonight, and we will get this straightened out. Oh, wait. Kathleen, Sarah? is that you? Yes, oh, it is. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. I could, okay. I could hear the night bell ringing, but it wasn't transferring to my phone. Oh, well, uh, thank you for figuring that out. And everybody, let's give Kathleen a round of applause for so much. (laughs) Sorry to be such a worry. I've been looking forward to this. And so I just said, wait, they have a call-in number. I'll go call them. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you did. Okay, everybody, we do get to go ahead and start with our program now, which I'm very glad. I'm sorry we had kind of a rough start, but I think we'll figure it out. And... um, Let me just go ahead, and why don't you, Kathleen, why don't you start off just telling everybody a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm um, Kathleen Wall, and I'm the Colonial Foodways Culinarian at Plymouth Plantation. Um, Plymouth Plantation is a living history museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and we have um, several sites in our museum. One is the 1627 Colonial Village. Uh, which is the English settlement, which everyone thinks of for Thanksgiving. But we also have a Wampanoag home site. So we tell the story of the native people who were here to greet the pilgrims in 1620. Um, We also have Mayflower 2, which is a recreation of the Mayflower and a ship that has, a sailing ship that sailed across the Atlantic as a gift from England to the people of the United States in 1957. And our newest exhibit is the Plymouth Grist Mill at Jenny Pond. So we now have a, a mill as well. And I might have missed a few things. So we're, we're a, a busy little museum here on the coast of uh, Massachusetts. Well, it certainly sounds that way. 
So you're involved with historic food waste. What does That's that right. mean? Well, um, I work with the colonial food waste in particular, and food waste, I am pleased to say, is not just um, food, but it has to do with um, how we cook the food, how we prepare the food, how we perceive the food, um, what it's cooked in. So I get to work with potters um, in making um, pots and dishes. I um, work with um, archaeologists to see what are the remnants of bones, to see how things were cut. I um, look at paintings and um, uh, to see how things were served. I read plays to see how people talk about food. So it's it's everything to do with food. Um, and, um, and I read cookbooks too, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I just want everybody to know that Kathleen is one of my very favorite food historians and she just is does such an impressive job on her research and on being accurate that I just I love her so <laughs> I think it's so great that she could come on and, and share things with us so um, before we move on into talking about Thanksgiving um, Kathleen and I presented a program actually on Thanksgiving at the Alfam Association of Living History Farms and Museums conference this summer. And one of the things she talked about was she told us a story about Barbara Walker. And I thought that all of the regular Laura listeners would just love to hear her tell that. So if if you don't mind, you you want to I, go I ahead and share. I don't mind at all. In fact, I was thinking, how can I work this into the first Thanksgiving? <laughs> um, because it was such a highlight, and it really got me thinking about. Um, perceptions of Thanksgiving from people who lived on the frontier and who lived um, in the 19th century when the holiday really began because this year is the 150th anniversary of the first national Thanksgiving Day. So it's it's got a lot more to do with the 19th century than with the 17th century. Um, I got a call from um, the Boston Culinary Historians um, the Culinary Historians of Boston, of which I'm a member, and it was from uh, Barbara Walker, who said she was going to be in the area and did anyone know anyone at Plymouth Plantation. And I was like, you know, jumping up and down saying, me, 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 um, because <laughs> I had read this cookbook um, years ago, and I fell madly in love with it, and it never occurred to me to try to contact the author of the Little House in the Prairie cookbook, um, because I'm a latecomer to the Little House story. I didn't discover it when I was young. I discovered it when I was a freshman in college. I was 17 years old, and it was a Reader's Digest book, and that was the last of the, the Laura books that was published, and the one that was least edited by um, Rose, and it it amazed me that this woman had been through so much and I realized she essentially like had children and her house burned down around her and had you know been through the frontier and she was the same age I was and I was a college freshman and I could you know barely get myself to classes and it just I I, so I read the books when I was older and it really there was so much in them and there's so much food in them 
So, um, so Barbara Walker brought her her class, um, that she, her high school reunion class, um, to the plantation. And when I said Barbara Walker was coming, because I immediately brought my copy of the cookbook to have her sign, um, so many of my staff are Laura fans to the degree that they know who Barbara Walker was, and they were thrilled because they got to talk to her and, and talk about 17th century food to one of their favorite food historians. But she was a peach. Oh, she is a peach. So, oh, she really is. And yeah. it was. Uh, and I, I love that story because it shows such a um, that side of of it, and that she really. It, it's really amazing because I don't think she really set out to do this, but she really, I think, started a lot of people on the path to food history. That she inspired a lot of people who who are working in the field today. And a lot of them talk about having that that first uh, little house cookbook and kind of going I, from there she She was writing these things um for her third grade class, and I just thought she's the best third grade teacher in the history of the world um because you know and then and then kept putting it together and it kept being a little more and a little more, and it ended up being a book um uh, yeah you're right, I don't think it started out that way. It was just something she wanted to do for her class to to really bring the books alive to really bring the past alive and food is a connection, and she saw that very early on and and the book is so lovingly and wonderfully done um, because I reviewed it again with a, you know, a stricter eye and um, it's just, it just holds up. It's just marvelous. It, and she makes a very good point because the, the food is such an important element in, in the Little House books themselves. I mean, that really, uh, it, it comes back to it so many times. And I think partially because Foodways was such a more intertwined part of daily life at that time than it is now. I mean, now we kind of take it for granted and people don't know where bread comes from and they think meat comes off of a supermarket shelf, just, you know, magically appears there by house elves or something. But then people actually were involved in food and getting enough food all the time. Yeah. And, it really and, and had to make sure they had enough food and knew about not having food. And so that made it really, you really paid attention to what was going on around you. And I'm sure there are people today who think, you know, chickens have fingers. Um, although yeah. there was no such piece of, of a chicken that is a finger. So... Well, it it is interesting. So, and that sort of ties in because um, to the Thanksgiving, because Thanksgiving, one of the things that is really a uh, hallmark of it is food. I mean, um, I don't think no matter when you look at it, celebration, food was always a really big part of it. And I think it was the time when people got to, you know, celebrate. Sarah? Oh, no, I lost you. Where are you? There you are. Where okay. Are you? Mm-hmm. All right. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, I was just saying that uh, it, the food ties into the Thanksgiving because it's um, it, it was sort of the special time of year. No matter when you celebrated Thanksgiving, you know, over the course of its history, food was always a big important part of that and having the special extra food then and being grateful for having the food. So I think it all ties oh. together. 
Oh, absolutely it does, yeah. No, and any sort of celebration. And that's what's really interesting because because Thanksgiving as a national holiday is is a fairly new holiday, immediately people are looking to to put it back to the beginning of America. And um and they sort of um you know, and so and that's how the Pilgrim story became part of it, because the event of 1621, as we call it, you know, when the pilgrims gathered with the native people, um, it, it, in 1820, Daniel Webster, on Forefathers' Day, which is the day that they landed, which is in December, um, you know, talks about the rock and, and talks about the pilgrims, and that sort of brings the pilgrims into the story of the founding of America um, because he was such a powerful speaker and people paid attention to his speeches and because he collected them and published them so people could read them who weren't. Um, at Pilgrim Hall in 1820, listening to him, although he had very large crowds there. Um, so the pilgrims become part of the story, and Plymouth Rock becomes part of the story because we want a country founded on rock. And Plymouth has this rock, and it's it's a great touch. Um, and it's it's not until a little later that the pilgrims become people and the story of the native people, the Wampanoag people, and the English people eating together becomes part of the festivity too. So it's really interesting to see the progression of, of how the pilgrims get involved in this story. So what did the term Thanksgiving mean to the Puritans? Oh, for the Puritans um, and uh, for many English in the 17th century, a Thanksgiving was a day of fasting and prayer. And fasting is pretty much as opposite from feasting as you can get. Um, so uh, there is a day of Thanksgiving in 1623, but first they have a day of humiliation because there's a drought, and they pray for God's forgiveness. And that night there's a gentle rain that restores the corn. It refreshes their corn so their crop isn't lost. And in um, a month later they have a day of Thanksgiving where they refrain from their work and they spend the day in the meeting house praying, thanking God for saving them. So they're not seeing festivity days as being days of Thanksgiving. They're seeing uh, a Thanksgiving as being a holy day that you spend in prayer. And there, this wasn't just um, a one-time thing. They, you, they had different times when people would declare a Thanksgiving for something or other. Right, and they were always one-shot deals. You had a very specific reason to have a day of humiliation or a day of Thanksgiving, but you didn't celebrate the anniversaries of it. They did not like celebrating anniversaries. So there's one part of how we have national holidays year after year that they would not like at all. Um, and, and in fact, you know, playing football and eating too much. Um, in 1621, there were a group that wanted to refrain from work on Christmas Day. And um, they said their consciences would not allow them to work on Christmas Day. And some of them trotted off to work. And when they came back and saw these mostly men um, pitching the bar and playing stew ball, William Bradford took away their instruments of play and said his conscience would not allow them to play while others were at work. Um, so they could observe the holiday, but without any sort of entertainment. 
um, which isn't much of a celebration when you come right down to it. Um, and New England was not a huge Christmas, um, you know, place for a really long time. Um, so these sort of homecoming Thanksgivings in the 19th century where people were going west, and west might only be as far west as Deerfield, Massachusetts. You didn't have to go far west from Plymouth to be west. Um, but when they start going out to Ohio, which is the Western Reserve of Connecticut, when they start going out, you know, um, to really the great Midwest, um, they, they would come home every couple of years and, and then they would celebrate when people started going into factories to work. Um, they would get some time off, uh, maybe in November or early December. So instead of Christmas, they were celebrating these homecomings. And so Thanksgiving became a homecoming. And Sarah Josepha Hale, who is from New Hampshire and lived in Concord, Massachusetts, before she went to Philadelphia to edit Godey's Ladies Book, um, loved this holiday and really felt it ought to be a national holiday. And she petitioned president after president saying this should be a national holiday. So um, she's really the godmother of, of Thanksgiving. And uh, there was another tradition, too, of having a fall harvest festival that, that came from pretty much all over the place. I mean, there, there yeah, seems to just be a very and that's, strong um, thing. And in Europe, and you find it among Native people, it's interesting because the Wampanoag people, the Eastern Woodlands people who live here in southeastern Massachusetts, um, have a series of Thanksgivings during the course of the year. This is an incredibly rich um, area for um, for food. Um, you've got all of the woodland creatures um, available to you and all of the wild fruits and vegetables that grow there. Um, they had their corn as well and their beans and their squash, but they're also on the coast, so you have all kinds of fish um, and migratory birds. So um, there's, there's something to celebrate each season. And so they would celebrate the green corn coming in, the first corn, um, and then they would celebrate the corn harvest a little later on that would get them through the winter. They would celebrate the strawberry as the first sign of spring. So there are, are several different Thanksgivings that they mark throughout the course of the year. And... Um that gets us, us back to, I believe you call it the in event of 1621. What do we know about that? Well, let's see. In 1621, um, Massasoit um, arrives um, in Plymouth with 90 of his men. Um, there are 50 people living in the English village, so that means there are twice as many Native men as there are English people, um, and they stay for three days, and they feast and celebrate. And it might be the harvest. They don't say that in particular, although it, it's one of the longest sentences you will ever see. It goes on for two pages. Um, thank you, William Bradford. And um, he, so it's like they send some men a fowling, and they take in two days as much fowl as will feed the company for a week. And Massasoit arrives, and he sends some of his men out, and they bring in five deer that they give to the chiefest men of the English town. And they stay for three days, and they exercise their arms, and, you know, and then there's and, 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 and. And um, so there's not a lot of details on the food, but it's a lot of Native people, and it's three days. And so you get the sense they're eating over the course of three days. Now, another thing that has happened that you have to know starting back in March is that Massasoit and 
governor of the English village, John Carver at the time, signed a treaty together. And over the course of the summer, Massasoit is traveling throughout his land to each individual village to have all of those individual village um, elders sign this treaty. And that treaty is dated September 19th, 1621. So I think that is actually what's bringing them all together, is they finally got all of these names, and I think there were 50 or 60 names on this treaty. Well, that would make sense. I think so, so but again, I don't know. So. <laughs> so, a lot about the food, as you mentioned, but yeah. uh, do you think it was likely that they were eating turkey? Turkey are one of the things that William Bradford mentions in particular shortly before he starts this long description um, of men going out and bringing how, how they're plentiful in the country. Um, and because they don't mention it specifically in conjunction with um, this event, um, I have been called a turkey denier, um, which I, I, <laughs> I don't deny turkey. Uh, but when they say wildfowl, generally that means waterfowl, and there are several varieties of ducks. There are varieties of geese, there are swans, there are lots of water birds that are available to them as well. And I suppose what I really want to emphasize is that it's not that it's, there could very well be turkey on the table, and I have no problem with putting turkey on the table, just don't make it the only bird. I want, I want people to imagine a table with lots of different kinds of wildfowl on the table, not just one big turkey in the middle that everybody oozes and ahs over. And that's how it's different from what we have now. Now we have one center, um, centerpiece bird, um, and the whole meal goes around that bird. And in the 17th century, you'd have lots of different birds on the table. That's all. Well, even if they didn't want to, you'd almost have to. As you're shooting wild game, you mean you, you can't guarantee you're going to hit six matching turkeys. You're going to well, you exactly. Know, hit what's um, there. There's such an abundance of wildfowl in the country. They talk about, you know, men go out um, to shoot. And these are guys who are not experienced. They're like standing in blinds and shooting. But the birds are so plentiful, um, they can bring home um, – 200 pigeons in one shot, and these are the wild passenger pigeons, um, which we'll probably be hearing a lot more of next year as it marks the centennial of the extinction of the passenger pigeon. Um, That was our last episode. Yeah. Oh, it's just, it's so, it's so dramatic and so amazing. But they talk about these birds arriving millions upon millions, that you could hear a sound 15 minutes, a quarter hour before you saw any, and they would just blacken the sky. There were so many of them. And um, and you just hear a count after count in the 17th century, in the 18th century, even in the early 19th century, um, that there are just so many of them. And they would fire one shot of scatter shot, of bird shot, and 200 birds would come dropping out of the sky. Um, and then they said some of them you couldn't even find the shot in. It was like the sound of the gun was knocking them out of the sky. Um, and so it's just it's there's an, an incredible abundance of food for them to have. Um, Although too, uh, the other thing is you you want to have a lot of different birds because game birds tend to be a lot smaller than what we think of when we think of turkeys, which is like from that one breed that's been bred so big its breast is. 
so it couldn't breed naturally. And oh yeah, the, the turkey, turkey, the butterball turkey in the supermarket, not to mention a brand, but. If I say that, then you all know what I mean. It's so different from a wild bird. Um, it's sort of the Dolly Parton of the turkey world. And and what you need for a wild bird is something more like Wiggy of the, the bird world. Um, and we've had trouble um, purchasing turkeys that aren't heritage breeds um, because if we try to put one on a spit, they're so young and their bones are so ill-formed and they're so misshapen. In other words, that they don't, you can't turn them evenly on a spit. They don't sit well. Um, they kind of fall apart. You have to bake them in a pan in an oven. You can't really spit roast them. Um, so, That's sad. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just it's it's um, and it's it's true with chickens as well. But they're smaller and you can tie them up better. But the turkeys are just. Um, impossible. On the other hand, in 1621, they're talking about turkeys that weigh 30 and 40 pounds, which just means these are old turkeys, um, which would be better off stewed up or made into soup than tried to roast on a spit, because you want a young bird on a spit. Well, all right, let's turn away from the turkey for just a little bit. And what are the... <laughs> One of the other things um, that's mentioned in Farmer Boy, though it says it, it may not have been good, that she talks about there being popcorn and them bringing bags of popcorn to the, the first Thanksgiving, which I have no idea where she got that story from in particular, but is it true? Was there popcorn at the first well, Thanksgiving? Well, I know where she got this story. There was no popcorn in um, east of the Mississippi in 1620. Um, popcorn is a particular variety of corn. It's grown in the West and in the South. Um, and it's not until we have westward expansion again that we, um, we don't discover it. Um, the Spanish discovered it in the 16th century in Peru. Um, but we weren't trading in that kind of corn then. And so it comes back and it's hugely popular and people start growing it in all other sorts of places and um, and selling it. And so you start seeing it at um, the Wild West shows and you start seeing it at circuses and then you start seeing it outside of theaters and before you know it, it's outside of movie theaters, you know, 50 years later. And, um, and now we connect it with the movies. So popcorn is very popular um, during the time of Farmer Boy. And growing popcorn is really, it's the, it's the thing to do. Um, and having parties where you make popcorn balls um, with molasses and popcorn um, or popping corn, it's, it's the thing to do. But this story comes from a novel that was written by a woman from Plymouth, of all places. Um, and she puts popcorn smack dab in the middle of the feasting of the first Thanksgiving. And so it's a real surprise to me to find it turning up a few years later on the frontier um, and being told the stories that they learn in school um, at Farmer Boy. I looked at it and I said, the leather bag is a story, the native man bringing popcorn in a leather bag is a story from Jane Goodwin Austen, whose real name was Mary Jane Goodwin. She married a Henry Austen. She dropped the Mary and became Jane Austen, but oh dear, not that Jane Austen um, yeah, spent I, her life. Ever since, I, 
ever since I heard about her, I just can, I call her the other Jane Austen. It is oh, yes. spelled slightly differently, but I just think and, that's it's so funny that anybody would pick to think their name that. So I, she was so deliberate about Jane it. Austen. She was so deliberate about it. She um she wrote and she wrote lots. She was very prolific. She had family in Plymouth. She actually was from Worcester, Massachusetts. She had family in Plymouth. She would come and visit here. She heard all the stories. Um and then she started writing stories that were somewhat based on the Mayflower passengers and somewhat based on the past and the first one she wrote, she implied that she found a secret diary from William Bradford's first wife, Dorothy, um, how she despaired uh, that she traveled on the Mayflower, and so she finally decided to commit suicide by throwing herself overboard. And, you know, so this novel, it's, it's very racy. It, it travels everywhere, and the people in Plymouth and the Bradford family were horrified by it. And they said, show us this diary. Why don't we know about it? this oh she finally says ever so demurely it's a work of fiction there's no real diary oh they're (laughs) furious with her um and so then she goes on and writes these other stories and so they're all rather outrageous and very popular i mean she really hits on a vein um and they're they're really rather entertaining if you don't look at them for 17th century history but for 19th century history and they are fun if anybody wants to read standish of standish which which is i think the one that had the popcorn story in it that has you the can't popcorn find story in yeah it, it's on google books full text and they also are selling reprints on all those little printing up things of everything that's gone out of copyright website. So if you want to read the story for yourself, uh, you can certainly find it pretty easily. But I, I just, I never can get over that. The other Jane Austen. I, I the just... other Jane Austen, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and she was, and, and that whole movement with her writing was one of the times where we had a, a colonial revival. We seem to do this with great regularity in this country where we have uh, and that's part of the reason why the um, Thanksgiving tradition got reestablished or got so firmly established too in this picture of the pilgrims doing it because we'd have these periodic colonial revivals where it was all the rage to be colonial and um, it's interesting to see that that Americans constantly rewrite their past um, that we you know because we don't have a very old history so we really have to fine tune it and we really try to make our past you know our 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 beginning to say a lot about who we are now um and so so there were these different waves of of you know well who do we really want to see ourselves as as and so i think jane and mary jane as i would like to call her um you know was certainly part of that um because she's she's writing what's essentially historical fiction and there's still a huge market for that sort of thing and now we see it as entertainment we don't see it so much as history and now people who write historical fiction are very um, particular about getting all their details correct you know and and telling you where their research is so um, you know so we want to say it's about the research but really it's about us now mm-hmm. oh oh did I lose you again? Uh, the Little I, House you, books talking you are. about 
it is the uh, story of the three colonels, or as everybody else in the world knows it besides Laura, the story of the five colonels. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I've seen, I've, uh, you know, the three or the five kernels of corn is one of those stories that, um, in fact, I got a letter about this, asking about this just yesterday. Um, and it, I heard about it first at a luncheon for Mayflower Descendants, and they had a little card with five kernels of corn glued to it, and someone came um, in front and read the story that they all knew, and I had never heard of this before, and it's very common with Mayflower descendants to tell the story, and I've seen it on a lot of websites, and there are variations of a theme between the three and the five, and when I started like looking for the, the 19th century um, origins of this, at least, because these, these Mayflower descendant societies, um, and each family has one of their own, as well as the general Mayflower Descendant Society. Um, many of them were formed um, in between the 1850s and the 1880s or the 1890s, so it's all around the same time. And I found a poem called Five Kernels of Corn by Ezekiel Butterworth, which is a wonderful name. And he's a man from Bristol, Rhode Island, and he wrote all sorts of um, poetry about America. And um, and this is about the year of the famine in Plymouth of old. So it's about 1623. But that part poem that it's 1623 and not 1621 gets lost over the course of the years. And um, and it's it's a wonderful um, stirring poem. Um, let's see. Um, "'Twas the year of the famine in Plymouth of old. The ice and the snow from the thatched roofs had rolled. Through warm purple skies steered the geese o'er the seas, and the woodpeckers tapped in the clocks of the trees, and the boughs on the slopes to the south winds laid bare. In dreaming of summer, the buds swelled in the air." The pale pilgrims welcomed each reddening morn. There were left but for rations five kernels of corn. Five kernels of corn. Five kernels of corn. But to Bradford, a feast were five kernels of corn. And he actually has all those exclamation points in it. I did not add them for dramatic effect. Um, and it goes <laughs> on like this. And there is a mention, Bradford mentions um, in 1623, when there was that drought, before they had their first Thanksgiving, the day they called Thanksgiving, that um, the ancient Romans you know, complained that they had but five kernels of corn, would that we had such a feast. Um, and they were actually out of bread for um, several weeks. And for hardworking people, that lack of carbohydrates is um, a real problem in your diet. Um, it made them very weak. They couldn't take their boats out for fishing, so they could only eat shellfish. And, you know, when you tell people they were forced to eat lobster, they say, oh, what sort of hardship is that? Lobster has no fat in it. Lobster has no fiber in it. You need to eat 16 pounds of lobster for a 17th century man to have the three to 4,000 calories he needs to do his work for that day. That's a and lot it really of food makes to a eat. Diff 
It is. If you don't get the calories, it really does make a difference. When when my grandfather had his first heart operation, they put him on a thousand calorie a day diet, and he just could do nothing. They finally had to yeah. intercede and up it because they just he just couldn't move. It was it was yeah. just not enough. Your, your system shut down. And when you eat that much protein without any carbohydrates, I mean, think of the Atkins diet. Your body goes into ketosis. That means it starts burning up the protein, not the fat, because it's holding on to the fat till the very end. So you get thinner, you get weaker, and your breath smells like death. So they thought they were dying, and they weren't far wrong in their estimation of their condition. I mean, this is a really desperate time. Bread is the staff of life for hardworking people. And when they didn't have bread, they knew they were in a bad way and this could very well be their end. And so this this really is that summer of 1623 is a critically desperate time for them, even worse than the first winter when half their number died. So... It really so five so kernels it does of corn. Corn does tie back into it a little bit, but it does. Isn't. Yes, and I, and I find it really interesting because I have met quite a few people who who say that they have um, ever since they were little and read that in on the banks of Home Creek that they have uh, three kernels of parched corn that they put out um, as part of their Thanksgiving tradition and. My guess is, and this is, it's kind of ironic because there's so much of the Thanksgiving traditions that are this way, that my guess is within a generation they're going to forget that was because it was in on the banks of Plum Creek and they're going to think it's a family tradition coming down or something that really was something that the, the pilgrims did and had. And, oh, and I can oh, just absolutely. see it coming. Yes, I mean, and that's how so many of our traditions begin. That's why turkey has become such a centerpiece and why people insist on putting turkey on the table because we've been doing it for generations. So therefore, it must always have been done that way. Um, that's why the, the lack of pumpkin pie in 1621 comes as such a shock um, and the lack of cranberry sauce as we know it. Um, so because all of those things that we assume, um, we just assume we're always there because we can't imagine how could you have this meal without those things it's like having a birthday party without candles on the cake i mean okay you had a cake but you need to put candles on it to make it a birthday cake um otherwise it's just a plain cake exactly and and uh it, it really is something where all these traditions built up over the 19th century so uh we start having it you know with blinken being the the fourth Thursday in November across the country. We have Lydia Maria Child coming up with Over the River and Through the Woods. We have, uh, you know, Sarah Josepha Hale finally getting it declared a national holiday. And things just sort of slowly build up. And then they keep going with the um, first football game in the 1870s and, you know, eventually up to adding the green bean casserole, which was actually coming out of a corporate kitchen. So it, it is funny how things sort of slowly built up to create the traditional Thanksgiving that we have today. I think it's really interesting. I was just reading some, um, in um, 150 years ago, the country's at war, and 
people in the Northeast in particular are sending turkeys and other food and hams, not just turkeys, um, to the front um, for their soldiers. So many of the traditional foods um, that we now have on the table, some of these men were getting for the first time in a community setting during the war. And you notice that again in World War I because that really solidifies a lot of these traditions because the Army and the Navy both decided to celebrate Thanksgiving. And I grew up in Plymouth County in Massachusetts, and our leading agricultural crop is cranberries. And cranberries were declared an essential fruit because cranberry sauce was necessary for Thanksgiving dinner for the troops. And a lot of people never ate cranberry sauce until that Thanksgiving during the war. And right after the war, they came back and suddenly cranberry sales shoot up for Thanksgiving. Um, And canned cranberry sauce was used in World War II. And um, it just, we haven't looked back since then. It's become essential. But cranberries were declared an essential fruit. So if you were a cranberry farmer, um, you could keep your workers. They They didn't necessarily have to be drafted. And you could get funds to help improve your equipment to make up for your lack of workers because the cranberries were needed. It's amazing. Okay, well... We could keep going, but I want to uh, oh, yeah. talk just a little bit about then how um, how did Plymouth sort of come into the national spotlight with Thanksgiving? They sort of began to embrace having um, a celebration of Thanksgiving there. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, Plymouth, uh, you know, it's sort of a reluctant embrace for a long, long time. Um, yes, we had the rock, um, but Thanksgiving was a day you were supposed to be at home. All the restaurants in town would be closed. Um, and this was true up until the 1960s, really. And um, and then the town realized all these people kept coming to Plymouth and they had to do something with them. Um, so they, they're, um, the... They had this huge public dinner at Memorial Hall, um, which they they stopped doing a few years ago because all the restaurants in town finally realized, oh, maybe we should be open that day and we could sell Thanksgiving dinners and actually make a little money. Um, So, you know, we've sort of embraced the fact that we're a tourist destination and the Thanksgiving dinner that you can find in Plymouth is the 19th century turkey, sweet potatoes, mashed potatoes, maybe some mashed turnips because this is New England and we love our root vegetables, and um, apple pie, pumpkin pie, cranberry pie. You have to have those things. And Indian pudding. Oh, my goodness. How could I forget that? It was just National Indian Pudding Day. Of course, I'm sure everyone celebrated. Yes. Well, so, I shared you know, out your thing on Facebook, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, you have to pay attention to these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So if somebody wants to um, spend Thanksgiving in Plymouth today, can they do that? Is there a lot of tourist stuff going on? 
There's, there's um, in fact, t- um, Saturday we have our big Thanksgiving parade. It's the week before, and there are festivities that continue on Sunday. Many hotels are already booked up um, at Plymouth Plantation. Our Thanksgiving dinners, and we have a Victorian dinner, um, what we call the All-American dinner, as well as a, a 1627 harvest meal, um, have been sold out since September for this day, and we have several seatings. Um, so there is a turkey buffet available here. There are some places in town that offer buffets um, that you can go and get a turkey dinner. Um, So there, you know, and there's certainly, and of course at Plymouth Plantation, it's 1627 in our English village and um, our, our, you know, all of our sites are open and so we're here ready for business. Um, But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, we get a lot of people traveling to come here. It's, it's become sort of a homecoming for people who aren't from here which is kind of interesting. Um, we really are America's hometown. Well, it, it sounds like it's one of those things to put on your life goals list. I always want to spend fourth, the 4th of July sometime at Mount Rushmore, and I think I may have to come visit you in Plymouth sometime for Thanksgiving because it certainly sounds like an experience. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, We'd love to see you. Yeah, and I haven't had cranberry pie before, I must admit. I have had cranberry jello, which is my goodness, my one of my top favorite flavors of jello now. It is so good. And they only have oh. it this time of year, so go out and buy some. Oh, absolutely. That sounds lovely. Yeah, cranberry pies, oh, there's so many pies. Here in Plymouth, we like to put a lot of pie on the table. Um, and actually, one of my favorite um, Thanksgiving dishes is, uh, is an 18th century dish. It's called Marlboro pudding, which is a kind of an apple custard pie. So it's the best of apple pie and custard pie put together. I don't know else how, how else to describe it. Um, but they serve oh, it at Old Sturbridge Village. Oh, yeah, it's really, really good. So there's a lot of good Thanksgiving food out there. Um, oh, good. The interesting well, thing you know, that I, I get to observe is is people bringing some dish of their own culture into the Thanksgiving table. So you have the yes, all-American meal with the definitely an ongoing thing. And that's and that's just really interesting to see how people make Thanksgiving their holiday. Well, it it seems like overall it has less cultural baggage than say Christmas, which which while it is highly commercialized and I think there's this whole separate tradition, it still has that kind of religious idea that Thanksgiving, even though it started out as probably a more religious holiday, has kind of lost, that it's more about food and family and just sort of general gratefulness. And pretty much everybody can get behind that, no matter what their culture is they're coming from. And because no. and because you celebrate it at home generally, you get to create your own traditions about it, and that's and that's this is back to food ways, and so it becomes important uh-huh. because it's a way to share food with your family. So you know, lots of families have particular dishes that they absolutely have to have, and some of them are regional dishes um, that um, different parts of the country have different things that you might find on the table, whether you call it stuffing or whether you call it dressing. You know, do you put sausage in it or oysters or is it cornbread or is it white bread? Um, You know, so just that part of the turkey dinner um, can be very specific. Um, Or what parts do you change up or, or what What's sacred and you can never, ever, ever change. Um, I know people who absolutely have to have their cranberry sauce out of a can. Um, it does, and you can make some cranberry sauce, and they're very, you know, they're, they're that's fine. But you have to have the canned stuff too, or it's not really Thanksgiving. Well, 
It does look very pretty coming out of the it, can. It, it does. It does. <laughs> no, and Better than I don't disagree. <laughs> I think there's room for more than one cranberry sauce on the table. I think there's always room for more than one on the table. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and the thing that we always have in our family, which comes from my great-great-grandmother, which I don't think anybody else has, but we have hickory nut rolls, which are so good. Oh, my <sighs> goodness. That sounds lovely. And I'm sure oh, there's they a story are. behind that. That's lovely. Well, but, well <laughs> anyway, uh, if people want to learn more about Thanksgiving or spending Thanksgiving in Plymouth, uh, where should they go? Do you have any websites or resources to recommend? Um, Plymouth Plantation, we have a website. It's at uh, org because we spell Plymouth the old-fashioned way. Um, and um, and just Google Plymouth, Massachusetts, and there are all there are, there are lots of different websites. Um, Plymouth, Massachusetts, and Thanksgiving, and you'll find lots you'll find lots of details about what's going on here. So, um, I wanted to, uh, and then I wanted to just talk to you a little bit after we we got that done. Was talk a little bit about uh, Thanksgiving today. Because one of the things that that I think really is kind of endangering Thanksgiving a little bit is the fact that people don't do much everyday cooking. And in fact, my uh, mother and I were just having a discussion this week, and then we were thinking, you know, you always hear about these people giving out free turkeys, you know, to the to the needy. And I'm we yeah. decided that if they they should really be giving out turkey rolls because the people who are truly needy probably don't have the equipment or the know-how on how to properly cook a turkey. Um, and, and that really does seem to be um, something of of um, a problem because if you don't cook bread every day, you're not going to know how to make great-grandmother's rolls or anything. And that's what uh, I, you know... I hadn't thought of it that way, and it's interesting because I've been working with school programs for um, uh, sort of teaching children like to, how to make their way around in a kitchen because this whole loss of the home ec movement, um, like we've lost the home economics classes, and now we realize the consequence of that is we have a whole generation of people who don't know how to work their way around a kitchen um, who've exactly. also grown up with going out to dinner and going out and getting fast food um, and having all sorts of microwave things, which may or may not be food, um, but certainly aren't cooking in the, in the usual sense. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. What I've been noticing is like more and more people going out to eat for the holidays and not eating at home, but going out someplace else to eat, um, that more restaurants are seeing more um, traffic um, because, you know, 40 years ago, most of the Plymouth restaurants were closed because they wanted all their help to go home for Thanksgiving. And now they're all open yeah. and they have extra sittings. And, um, you know, you, you have to come in at a particular time and move right out again. You can't linger. And um, But the cooking and now thing, that's I have thought of that. Oh, and now retail, I know. And then people are, are saying no shopping on Thanksgiving Day. But there are lots of places that are open. Huh. Yeah, that's my general well, policy, though. I never go shopping on a holiday because I think it should be closed. And the only way you can really protest that is not to spend your money there. Because exactly. they, you know, if they don't make money staying open, they won't be open. Exactly. So. Exactly. But, yeah, yeah. I, so that's, 
that's one of my things that I've been kind of worried about in terms of Thanksgiving is is the cooking thing that that you know it's you have to have at least a certain know how if you, if you just plan on having that one one or two big holiday meals a, a year it isn't going to be successful I'll tell you um just just as an example, not that this is a Thanksgiving dish, but but one of the things that I'm kind of known for is my shortbread. And if I haven't made it for a while, I always screw up the first batch. Yeah, and I think that's true about you know holiday dishes too. If you don't if if you don't have some practice, yeah, they're not going to turn out. Yeah, wow, yeah, that's. I just this is a whole new thought for me, huh? Because I I grew up cooking like well because I grew up with people who cooked, um, and so and I work with people who you know we teach historic cooking over an open fire and and sometimes it's like no we're just going to boil the water please don't give me that look please let me think that you know how to boil water um, and that it's just different because it's a wood fire in a cast iron pot um, but I mean I I work with people who haven't cooked a lot. Um, I we deal with an audience who doesn't know that some of the things we cook over an open fire, you can cook just as well an electric stove or a gas stove in your own kitchen, um, that it's not the fuel that makes the cooking, it's the cook. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. I have to well, look at Thanksgiving I, differently now. Now yeah. I have something. That, well, and it, but there are all these hotlines. It's really interesting because I buy all the food magazines for Thanksgiving, and I don't usually get to read them much until December. So I was sort of flipping through, and everybody's panicked about pastry and pie crust, and um, you know, and, and some of these these are cooking magazines, food magazines, are saying, "Oh, buy the prepackaged stuff," and it's like, but oh. pie crust isn't really all that hard, and it can it come isn't. out fine. And so just, you know, just try it. Just it's not like, don't be afraid. It's It's just pastry. Oh, it's so much better to have homemade pie crust. I know. (laughs) It's about a zillion times better. And it isn't really all that hard. I mean, it's it's like I do a lot of teaching kids how to do, do biscuits when I'm doing my food programs. And I tell them, now, I do not want to see you ever buying a roll of freezer biscuits because you don't need them. You could have them mixed up before you could get the package open. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I, cooking I, just I, takes I, practice. Well, I'm sorry to leave you stunned, but I'm so glad that you could come on today. <laughs> Even if we got off to a rocky start and I guess a rocky end. Kathleen is is uh, Kathleen is known as uh, Thanksgiving's poster girl. <laughs> I think I, I feel like I'm the, I'm the spokesmodel for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, spokesmodel, that was it. And, and it just is, uh, <laughs> she does a great job of it. I don't know who else would, would do a better one. And uh, I'm glad you could come on today and talk about Thanksgiving. And I hope that maybe we can have you back sometime and we'll have to talk about Cooking in general, because uh, um, yeah, I would love to. It, I would it's a mystery to people. To. <laughs> yeah, even though it is different between the 17th century and the 19th century, but we can at least talk in some general terms. That people oh would, yeah. Would oh, food sense. traditions are just yeah. Let's definitely let's do that, and we can talk about 17th century food that's not 
Thanksgiving because, you know, the other thing I just want to say is these people ate more than one meal in the course of their lives. Like the three days in 1621 were not the only time they sat down to eat. Just keep that in mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like that. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you. Thank you once again, Kathleen, and, and we will have to schedule a time for you to come back. Happy Thanksgiving. Great. Thank you. And, Happy Thanksgiving to you too, Sarah. And I think that has better be it. Thank you for everybody who uh, listened in. Despite our record. I hope you enjoyed it.